Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Andrew Cuomo has come under fire for limiting the media's access and ability to ask him questions as he faces a number of scandals. As the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports, the strategy has so far delivered some benefits to the embattled governor. The restrictions on the media began shortly after several current and former female aides accused the governor of sexual harassment and, in one case, sexual assault. Also, federal prosecutors were investigating Cuomo and his top aides for a potential cover-up of the number of nursing home residents who died in the pandemic. There are also allegations that the governor offered coronavirus tests to family and friends when the vast majority of New Yorkers could not get them and that he used staff to help him write a book. Cuomo, in early March, addressed the sexual harassment charges in a briefing with reporters, saying he understood that he had behaved in ways that made some people feel uncomfortable. And I truly and deeply apologize for it. I feel awful about it. Cuomo, who just a year ago was widely known for his daily in-person COVID briefings with journalists that were broadcast around the world, started holding events that were closed to the media, saying that the pandemic forced him to limit attendance. Most of the state's top politicians said Cuomo should resign, so the governor invited to the events allies who continued to stick with him, including longtime Cuomo family friend and NAACP president Hazel Dukes. There you are, Dr. Hazel Dukes, my second mother. Former Congressman Charlie Rangel, some hospital executives, and even the owners of the New York Mets. Many of the events, which resembled campaign-style rallies, were held at vaccination clinics. At them, Cuomo signaled a willingness to fight the controversies. He frequently talked about standing up to the struggles of the pandemic, but his words could also apply to the governor's own turn of fortune. And when you get knocked on your rear end and you get knocked on the canvas, you see the world from a different perspective. He says what's important is what you do next. And the question in life, What separates winners from losers, successful people from uh, unsuccessful people? What do you do when you get knocked flat on your back? That is the moment that decides who you are. Cuomo continued to take a limited number of questions from the media on Zoom calls or telephone conference calls, but he rarely answered ones from journalists who are assigned to cover him. Steve Greenberg, spokesman for Siena College Polls and a political analyst, says Cuomo's actions are classic damage control tactics, and so far they've benefited the governor. A poll released in mid-April found that though the governor's personal popularity had dropped and nearly half of New Yorkers believe the sexual harassment charges are credible, he's still widely admired for his handling of the pandemic. Right now it is working for Governor Cuomo. By a two-to-one margin, voters think he's doing a good job on 
on the pandemic. So he wants to continue to focus attention on the pandemic. One, it's where the voters think he's doing well. And two, we all know the pandemic is top of mind for virtually every New Yorker. In recent days, the governor's begun revising his approach after several articles and editorials criticized his restrictions on the media. On Monday, he held an event in Syracuse that for the first time since last year was open to in-person press. When questions turned to the scandals, Cuomo's tone was defiant. He denied any wrongdoing, and he turned the tables when asked about a couple of lengthy articles that detailed alleged acts of bullying by him and his staff, calling it slander. People say a lot of things in politics. Why do people say things? Who knows? People are venial, people want attention, people are angry, people are jealous. Who knows why people spread rumors? The governor seemed ready to continue the fight. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, this week, our Karen DeWitt reporting in the program about the governor coming under fire, something we all know in the media, that he's been limiting us. He's been making announcements around the state, but it's closed to the media. And while there are people there, it seems like a strategy by the governor as he faces a number of scandals. Your thoughts on how that's going for him? Well, I don't think he has much choice, David. This governor is in a lot of trouble right now. We know that. All these women have stepped forward and they pointed the finger at him and said that he's come on to them and worse. So he has that. He also has the nursing home thing, which in my estimation, maybe it shouldn't be, but is even more dangerous for him because this is a potential violation of law. And we know that the feds, the FBI and others, have been interested in that. Was there a process by which the Cuomo people decided they were going to sweep it under the rug, the nursing home deaths and how many there were? And was there an organized way to deceive the public? And did it break any laws by doing that? I think that that's the one that he's got some real problems with. In the meantime, what would you do if you were in that spot? You would limit the amount of questions you were going to have because reporters were going to be standing up there and looking at you and say, well, did you kiss her? Did you do this? Did you do that? Or did you, in fact, mess up by changing your approach to nursing homes and hiding information? Those are serious questions. I still think, I still believe that if he can survive this and he can go forward, he will run for governor a fourth term. And here's why. I don't see anybody really emerging who will beat him in a primary. I remember speaking with his father once, and his father was waiting for Hugh Carey to get out. (laughs) And Mario, if I could call him that, said to me, listen, you know, if he's not going to move, I'm like making it clear I'm going to primary him. So... In the same way, there's always the possibility that somebody will step forward, maybe Tish James, maybe Tom DiNapoli. Do I expect that to happen? Absolutely not. I think that he commands the high ground, as they say in war right now, in that he's looking down at them and saying, okay, bring it on. And I don't see them doing it because basically you have to have the guts to say, even if I lose, it's okay. Sometimes you have to have some guts. But how many legislators don't have guts because they sense there might be some hypocrisy and are worried about themselves? That's right, David. You know, there's this whole push now. (laughs) It's really very funny. Or not. 
There's a whole ethics push now, David. And the idea is, let's pass some ethics laws, and then Andrew can't do this kind of thing. And then they go home and they look in the mirror and say, but if we pass these ethics laws and they're enhanced, then some of the nonsense and the chicanery that goes on in the legislature will be exposed and will all be responsible under the new improved ethics laws. Unless, of course, you pass a bunch of ethics laws and say, the governor can't, but we can. Is it no wonder that in poll after poll, people don't like the legislature and often turn away from politics rather than getting angry and speaking out? They have very good reason not to like the legislature. I've always known that. When you're in the sausage factory, you see how they're being made, and it's not nice. You know, they come up a couple of days a week. They say they're in their home offices working very hard. They reap all the benefits, some of them still in law practices, even though they're prohibited in some ways from taking certain cases. And it is not a pleasant thing to watch. I used to say to my students, David, you were one of them way back in the day. I used to say, hey, these guys are really reprehensible in so many ways. I'd go around the room and I'd say to the students, what do your parents think about these legislators? And they would say to me, they're all a bunch of crooks. Now, in the beginning, I didn't believe that. I still don't believe it, of course. Nevertheless, many of them understand how you take advantage of the system. And if you passed increased ethics reform, maybe the smell would be better. But, you know, they haven't got the guts to do that. Well, the fact is that the legislature has now, this week, gone after a few of the pandemic powers. They're not that significant. Yorkers will no longer have to, quote, buy a jelly sandwich, chips, or other snack and their beer under an executive order state lawmakers repealed from Governor Andrew Cuomo. State lawmakers passed resolutions this week to repeal the directive, which restaurant owners have blasted for months as nonsensical. Cuomo had said chips or fruit alone couldn't count as food, which led to a Saratoga Springs bar offering Cuomo chips and salsa. The fact is that the legislature gave him the powers, he got in some trouble, and now they started to make moves to take him away. Yeah, but what are they taking away? Chips and salsa? Give me a break. They are in a bad spot. They gave him the powers, as you say, and people like restaurateurs are in really bad shape. In many cases, uh, I was in New York recently. Restaurants, by the way, were doing extremely well. People got to eat, you know. But many restaurants have closed. They've shut their doors because of the pandemic. And so now governors and mayors, they all have to take a real look at the way in which we are allowing people to be in or around restaurants because you can't have a society if you're not going to feed people. So on the one hand, you got to watch out for what the pandemic can do to them. And on the other, you got to say, hey, people are getting very impatient. Alan, we've been talking on this program for a while now about the police reform effort that's been going on in light of now convicted murderer Derek Chauvin of George Floyd, the former Minneapolis police officer, as that trial has been completed. These issues are not stopping at borders. In Albany, where WAMC sits, there has been quite a situation among the police and local protesters, among them many African-American minorities, who put up an encampment near the South Station. And the police, after a certain number of days, decided they're going to give them 15 minutes. They cleared them out. There was accusations of police brutality, police covering up badge numbers, police saying that this is a public street where they're encamping. They lit fires. There's been defecation, urination. Neighbors are complaining. So these are the competing issues that clearly, because some rocks were thrown and a window was broken, by demonstrators, says the mayor, 
They're not willing to talk. It's gotten to the point now where they're going to call an, basically an outside mediator. These issues are all over the country, including New York. Well, look, people need police protection. There's no question. Something happens, you want to call the cops, and the cops are going to come, and either they're going to respond appropriately or they're not. On the other hand, if you're not careful, the police will start to abuse. Putting a, a piece of tape over your badge number, why do you think they have that badge number in there? So people can report them. If you put a piece of tape over it, allegedly to protect your family, you are basically violating the whole intent of why we have badges and badge numbers on them. Not only that, this is a sort of a balancing act. On the one hand, you want the cops, you want them to respond when you really need them. And I remember one night I was at the radio station and I was looking out the window for some reason and there was a guy crawling across the windows on a ledge and he was pushing open a window. Well, I thought it was right to call the cops and I did. And several police cars showed up and it was just the guy deciding that it was the only way to get into his house without waking up his roommates. <laughs> but they were there. That's the point. You need police, but you need them to behave honorably. You need them to, to be respectful. You need them not to be racist. And when that line gets crossed, the society as a whole has to take a real careful look about how to do this balancing. Are you hopeful it can be achieved? Oh, yeah, I am. I think it's a matter of the people who are running these departments, the mayors and others, making it clear what behavior is acceptable and what's not. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Shartok. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The Siena College Research Institute has released its 14th annual survey of upstate New York business leaders. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. Don Levy, director of the Siena College Research Institute, says the survey, released earlier this month, found 80% of more than 1,000 upstate CEOs polled agree that economic conditions in New York State have worsened since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Over half of CEOs told us that the demand for their product or service decreased um, over the course of the year due to COVID, um, 51%. That number is even higher. Um, over 60% of CEOs in fields like engineering and, and construction, uh, our friends in food and beverage, well over 60% said that demand um, decreased. How about revenue? Uh, a staggering figure, really. 67% said that the revenue um, decreased. Uh, again, um, specifically in the southern tier, we saw that to be over 70%. Um, and in engineering construction, over 70% said that their revenues decreased. The study, sponsored by the Business Council of New York State, was discussed during a recent webinar. Council President and CEO Heather Braschetti says looming tax increases raise concerns. You would think after the experience that we all went through last year and record unemployment and the, the damage to small business in particular, that the legislature would have been cautious about 
piling on more burden. What they did instead is they decided to increase uh, general fund spending by 20%. Now, contrast that to 10 years of 2%. They basically undid uh, whatever good has been, uh, we've, we've felt. And when the governor took office, he said, New York has no place as the tax capital of the country. And uh, now we're right back there. Um, the taxes that were raised in this budget include an increase on high income earners um, who contribute approximately 40% of the personal income tax that's collected in the state. Um, if they live in Manhattan, they will now pay the highest effective personal income tax rate in the country. Levy notes that about four out of 10 survey respondents believe recession is almost certain in the months ahead. That may or may not be a position that, that you share. Um, and again, it may be a position um, that is stated from uh, a view of just how bad uh, the pandemic has been for CEOs. It does appear, and when we look historically at the data, um, that this group of people that we interview, CEOs of, of uh, for-profit companies across upstate, tend to be very hesitant in saying, I think things are going to get better. Levy says just 12% of CEOs, up from 6% a year ago, give state government a grade of either excellent or good on creating a climate to help businesses succeed. He adds that even as COVID subsides, CEOs are expressing guarded optimism, and only about 40% express hope for a 2021 recovery, while 39% expect worsening conditions. There's more at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. The New York State Attorney General's office is among those asking the Rensselaer County Board of Elections to provide additional early voting sites in the city of Troy. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard explains. On April 9th, the New York Civil Liberties Union wrote for the fourth time to the Rensselaer County Board of Elections asking officials to expand early voting in the Collar City. Perry Grossman is the senior staff attorney with the Voting Rights Project at the NYCLU. The early voting law requires providing equitable access to early voting, and, and the existing sites have not provided equitable access. So hopefully, with additional sites provided here and the data to show why these sites would be an improvement, the Board of Elections can finally settle on a better and more equitable early voting plan. Burrisman argued that the early voting site established in Troy in recent elections at a church on Spring Avenue is not accessible to many city residents. The NYCLU provided in its letter maps displaying racial and population density data. Troy's only early voting location is located in a predominantly white, less densely populated area. The Office of New York Attorney General Tish James wrote to the Rensselaer County Board of Elections earlier this week, agreeing with the NYCLU. The letter mentions the Office of the Attorney General's previous concern over, quote, the lack of a centrally located poll site in Troy where much of the county's minority population resides that is easily accessible by public transportation, end quote. The Attorney General's office is requesting, by April 26th, a written response from the Board of Elections on four proposed early voting sites. Jason Schofield is the Republican Board of Elections Commissioner for Rensselaer County. He says the board is in compliance with New York State early voting law. 
we do have an early voting site in the largest municipality, which is the city of Troy. It is on the bus line. Uh, it was used by thousands of residents uh, during the early voting cycle last year for both the primary and general election. However, Commissioner McDonough and I, uh, next week or within the next few weeks, are going to visit the four locations that they have asked us to look at. Schofield said he and Democratic Elections Commissioner Edward McDonough will visit each of the four suggested polling locations in the coming weeks. Though speaking with WAMC, Schofield cast doubt on the viability of the suggested locations. There's a lot that goes into having a site. You have to find a place that's going to take you for, for 10 days. You have to buy the equipment. So there's not just like we're not trying to be, um, you know, more open. It's just you finding the workers, finding the location. We had a lot, a lot to do to find the location in the city of Troy. We are losing polling locations constantly, especially now with COVID. It's even worse. Schofield questioned the feasibility of locating an early voting site at Unity House, a human services agency headquartered in the city's north central neighborhood, as one example. Unity House, which is right next door to the Conifer Park uh, Rehab Center, where people go in for treatment for, for substance abuse when they're waiting outside. You know, you're going to have people lined up and they're just staring at them when they go into their, their anonymous meetings. Schofield added he does not foresee any change in early voting locations ahead of the primary in June. Unity House has offered itself as an early voting location. In a statement Thursday, Nina Nichols, assistant director of development at Unity House, said, quote, Many of the families we serve in Troy have barriers to transportation and need a location that is easily accessible to perform their right to vote, end quote. In October 2019, officials gathered at Unity House to announce a state bill to establish an early voting location in Troy, the county's largest community, which was lacking at the time. The bill was signed in 2020. Speaking Thursday, State Senator Neil Breslin, who sponsored that bill, along with State Assemblyman John McDonald, a fellow Capital Region Democrat, said it's the responsibility of officials to ensure equal access to polling locations. Regardless of age, uh, creed, color, and so it's a fair election. And if they're not doing that, and I haven't had a chance to review this letter, if they're not doing that, then they should uh, discuss further what other sites are available. Uh, and we did the legislation with the purpose, the, the purpose of making sure everybody could vote and they weren't, that we were not going to be compared to Georgia. Officials in the city of Troy previously offered to pay for an additional polling site. Democratic Mayor Patrick Madden said there's a need. I'm grateful for the location that is in the city of Troy, uh, but I think there ought to be something um, located in the uh, denser uh, section of the city. Democrats in the Republican-majority Rensselaer County Legislature on Thursday announced they plan to introduce a measure to require the Board of Elections to provide a centrally located voting site in the densely populated area of the city of Troy, accessible by public transit. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. An education advocacy organization based in the Adirondacks is working to raise $1.5 million to help rural students in New York and Vermont go to college. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. 
Essex, New York-based College for Every Student, or CFES, was formed 30 years ago to help underserved and rural students attend college. President Rick Dalton says the organization's latest initiative, called North Country Brilliant Pathways, will provide 20 elementary, middle, and high schools in rural Vermont and northeastern New York with a three-year college readiness program. CFES is committed to raise $1.5 million to work with 20 schools in northern New York and schools across the state of Vermont. Each school must complete a simple one-page application. We'll select 20 schools based on community need and the school's commitment to change the status quo. Our vision for the North Country Brilliant Pathways Program is to create a national model of excellence that will inspire and ultimately lift up not just 20 North Country schools, but hundreds of other schools across rural America. Former New York Governor George Pataki lives in the Essex area and is an advisor to CFES. CFES, Brilliant Pathways, has outlined a program where 20 North Country school districts are going to have the chance to have significant expertise provided to them, families, their students, their community, so they can choose the right path forward to having a better future. This isn't just about enrolling people and signing things up and having another program. This is about changing lives, teaching essential skills, showing the pathway to opportunity, showing how a better career, a better future, and a better education can be achieved in every community, in every town and village throughout the North Country. It's a unique opportunity at a unique time. A program director will be assigned to each school, and a variety of resources will be made available, including partnerships with colleges and businesses. Professional development and career readiness training will be available for teachers, students, and their families. Brilliant Pathways Program Director Brett McClelland says each rural school will also be partnered with an urban school. The partnership is going to provide the diversity that is not seen in these rural communities, and it's going to give insight and preparation into that, you know, when you get on a college campus, you're finding often a very diverse community. Um, and for rural students coming from a non-diverse, that's a, that's a big challenge for them. So this partnership is going to provide mentorship. There's also going to be just insight into how a day-to-day -day life differs and is also similar in an urban community compared to a rural community. McClellan adds all eligible schools are being notified of the program. The application is a very short three-question application. It's schools that are committed to changing the status quo and how you're going to commit to that opportunity. The application talks about targeting specific students and how that will work and then how the, how the program will work in every school because it's going to look different in an elementary school as it would in a middle or a high school. Uh, this is a great opportunity for the North Country. The work with CFES has, has found itself all across the nation and even internationally. This gives an opportunity to expand what we do. Schools must submit applications by May 14th, and recipients will be announced June 1st. The three-year program will launch this fall. More information is at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. 
And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2118. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.